This morning will be our second of our four Advent series sermons. And the series is uh, As Far As The Curse Is Found. Uh, the last song we'll be singing every Sunday during the series, Joy to the World by Isaac Watts, has the famous line, he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And our passage will be from Genesis 50, so I'm double dipping. I'm going to close out our, our Joseph story. And I'm going to continue our Advent series in one sermon. And we're going to see that the, the brothers are going to come to Joseph and seek a type of reconciliation, which is exactly the kind of ministry that Paul describes for himself. But we're looking at the idea of this curse. Last week, Jason did a beautiful job uh, from Genesis 3 on how uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, the curse came in and it spread. It broke everything. It didn't just break Adam and Eve, they didn't just die and that was it. It spread, didn't it? It didn't only spread from human to human. Of course, Cain murders Abel, so it does do that. But it spreads into creation as well. And so, um, wow, it's a lot of bad news. That's why we celebrate Christmas. We're longing for the curse to be removed in Jesus. But we also celebrate Advent and Christmas because we know that in the church, we are now given that responsibility, that task of carrying forth that mission until Christ returns, to, to see healing come as far as the curse is found. And so this morning, we're going to look at the effects of the curse. And one of the primary things I want us to notice as we dive into this passage is so often as Christians, we think that the curse is out there. And yet when you study the people of God in Genesis, it's really in the family, isn't it? It's Cain and Abel, and in our passage we'll see, again, we'll be reminded of what Joseph's brothers did to him. But then, you know, even when Moses takes the the Israelites out out of Egypt, though it was Egypt who was inflicting the curse on them, they begin to murmur and have their own internal strifes. And that really does continue all the way through the Old Testament and on into the New Testament. Jesus's greatest critics and who would ultimately lead to his death were those that should have welcomed him who would have loved him and welcomed him to come in and rescue them. So I just think it's important as believers that this is a time of year to both enjoy the trappings of Christmas that we so much love, but to also examine our hearts. Are we longing for the return of Jesus? Are we really longing for him to bring reconciliation into our hearts? And so just to remind you of where we are in Genesis, Jacob has died. Uh, He's blessed his uh, sons and then passed away. And now the brothers of Joseph have a fear. They think, okay, now that Jacob is gone, is Joseph going to kind of change on us all of a sudden and bring harm? And, of course, as you know, it's a very famous passage. Joseph uh, is emphatically not going to do that. So let's read that together from Genesis 50, starting at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, That would have been a. Per- <laughs> that was the NIV version. The ESV says, "It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him." And by the way, we planned that, so don't think that I didn't know that was. So they sent a message to Joseph. Hear this message. Your father gave us this command before he died. And here's the command. Say to Joseph, 
Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now this is them picking it back up with their message. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise that all the way back at the beginning, starting in Genesis 3 and and in this story with Joseph, all the way right up to the present, every harm, every evil you've known about. And though you are not the author, we can take comfort that you are using it to bring about your purposes. Yeah, Father, you teach us in this passage and all the way through Scripture that part of our calling as believers is to also confess our evil as we long for Jesus to remove all of the problems, all of the curses, all of the evil. I pray for a ministry of reconciliation, Lord. I pray for your spirit to open our hearts that we would love you and love one another this time of year and forevermore. Amen. So there are, um, there's a lot of interesting things that have happened prior to this passage. Remember, there's a famine. I'm mean, Just to start at the beginning, God made the heavens. Okay, that's too far back. Joseph was kidnapped, ends up in Egypt, is in charge of the house of Pharaoh in order to, for seven years, collect all this grain and food so that when the seven years of famine set in, he can distribute it to the Egyptians and the surrounding culture. And along the, in that very first year, Canaan had also had the effect. So Jacob and Jacob's sons have to, well, Jacob's sons come down to Egypt to get food to survive. And they, they don't realize it's Joseph, but he realizes that's who this is, is the brothers. And so he tells them, come back with Benjamin, and he keeps Simeon. That was trip one. They go back. The food's gone. It's time to go get more food. And so they have to bring Benjamin this time, and they do. And that's where, in that meeting, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and there is a a type of reconciliation. And he says, go back and bring Jacob. Let's have a kind of, let's come back together. And Pharaoh was involved. And you may remember two weeks ago, we talked about the denouement. It was like this high point, but with future implications. And so now we have this interesting next phase as we close out the book of Genesis, where the brothers are still aware of the fact that there's this harm that they were involved in. And, and that Joseph seems to have forgiven them, but it's been, you know, 17 years. And now they're wondering, is this going to stay now that Jacob is gone? And so what you find in our passage is a, a, an emphatic reaffirmation by Joseph. You are forgiven. This is all meant for God's good, for pleasure. That there would be revival and there would be a future for your family and so on and so forth. And then you move into uh, really what Jesus does, a ministry where he reconciles all things to himself. And Paul uses that same language in 2 Corinthians 5. We'll look at it more in detail uh, in a few minutes, but where he finishes out 2 Corinthians 5 by saying, my ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. And primarily what he means by that 
is I, my job, Paul would say, is to reconcile, to see you reconcile church to God and to one another. And so we have the first, the first and second law, don't we? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and the ministry of reconciliation is that both would be brought together and healed. And that's, I think, a little bit of what we see in this passage and what our hopes are for the um, repealing of the curse. So we're going to look at four different things. First, we're going to look at the need for this reconciliation, both in our passage and in our present day. So there's, there's this need, right? We have, um, I've already mentioned it, but these brothers coming to Joseph with a need. They're still, um, risk, they're still at risk. Joseph is over everything. His brothers have their families and 17 years of offspring gathered in, in, the, in the Goshen area. They're, far, they're farming and they're doing their thing. And they realize that for that relationship to continue, they need to make sure that Joseph has absolutely forgiven them. And so that's really the setup um, for, this, for this passage. And I would just say a lot of commentaries wrestle with this letter from Jacob. Did Jacob really write this or give this message to the brothers? It seems a little far-fetched at first glance that here Jacob in his dying has blessed each of his sons, has also blessed Joseph and his sons and had these final parting words. When would this have happened? On the other hand, I think it's important when we read the scripture that we let the scripture tell us what it wants us to know. And there doesn't seem to be any real indication that Joseph didn't believe the message. So it's a little bit of both. It's challenging. Let me just give you the setup for it. In verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, and this is their words, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that he did to him. So it doesn't sound like, well, Jacob died. We have this message we're supposed to give. It sounds like there's a motive. So there is that, it's, a, it's fair to say the scriptures indicate they may have, had motive to send this message. But nonetheless, I think it's also fair to say that the message of Jacob is important because it doesn't say what you might think you would send. Our father Jacob wanted us to tell you that you've, we've already said we're sorry. You've already forgiven us, so let's just keep that up. It has very, very important pieces to it that we're going to look at in a moment, but it feels like this, like, Almost like they're saying to Joseph, we want to own our father's faith. We want to let you know we want to own the faith of our father. Our father had a faith and we're coming to you. And here's what he says. I'm going to read you the letter. Um, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. So by them delivering that message... It seems like they're saying we see the need for our relationship to understand this reality. And we are incredibly sorry. Will you forgive us? And so it moves them from this sort of position with Joseph that's sort of resting on Jacob being alive to them having a personal interaction, a personal relationship with Joseph, which by the end of our passage, our, our our short verses, Listen to Joseph's response in verse 21. Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them. And so the effect of this reconciliation moment is that they moved even closer into love and harmony that had a mutual 
love and care and respect with one another. And so it just shows you that even in this setting, they sense this need for something to continue the building of that relationship. So now we're going to look at the process of this reconciliation because this is needed both with us and the Lord and us with man. And so we need to really look at this process, um, what they're doing. The first thing they're doing in this process of reconciliation is they're going backwards. That's, that's really important. So often with the Lord and with others, we tend to want to just only go forward. Um, forgetting what is behind, we might quote Paul, I'm pressing on toward what's ahead, forgetting that Paul has also told us what's behind. Uh, we often tend to do that, and yet in our passage we see a blueprint for them really getting honest about what's happened in the past. Now, this has been, Joseph had been in the service of Pharaoh. He was 17 when he was kidnapped, 30 when he enters the service of Pharaoh. Help me out here, caveman. Seven years of prosperity, right? Seven, we're, we're now 17 years after maybe the one or two years of famine, so we're 19 years beyond that. They've, it's been a long, long, long time since that transgression had happened. Everybody knew about it. Why bring it up? But they do. They go backwards. Verse 15. Right? They remember what they've done. It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the evil we did. And then the message that they send contains a, rem it's almost like why remind him? Why poke the bear? If he's mad at you, don't tell him it. Just kind of hope it's gone. But they do. And I would just say repentance which is another word for reconciliation in the sense that we're being reconciled to God ongoingly, coming back to that relationship, we must always go backwards. We must, and, it, and that's not just something I've thought up. Paul has thought that up. Paul not only has his road to Damascus experience early in Acts, but regularly over and over, Paul reminds people of how bad he was, of the evils he did, of the kind of murder he committed. And it's really interesting. You'd think he would just get that behind him. Uh, then in 1 Timothy 1, he says this. After all, again, re-highlighting those truths. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Augustine famously writes his confessions. Talking about stealing pears. I feel like Alan Iverson right now. Pears? You want to talk about pears? Uh, anyone know that? Got that? And the answer is yes. Why would Augustine do that? Because going backwards is important as you go forwards. When I am 46 and I see new levels of my flesh and new levels of God's holiness, it's going to help me recognize, oh my goodness. What I thought was the problem here was not even close to the real problem. In fact, to the second thought of the process of repentance, we need to go deeper as well. Um, we're not just going backwards, but we're going deeper. Notice the, the key word that's used in this passage is evil. None of us like that word. <laughs> Raise your hand if you are evil. Okay, don't do it. That word, you want to kill an argument, tell somebody they're evil. Just like the argument's lost uh, or won. So why would this word keep coming up? Evil is such a hard word. 
In fact, sometimes as, as a pastor, I just feel so mean because it's like, why do we keep talking about these things? There's a very famous phrase from church history that says, Jesus cannot heal what he didn't assume. Referring to Jesus' humanity. We might take that same concept and say, we aren't going to be healed of the evils we don't believe we have. Now, I want you to hear me. When Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you are forgiven. But we will not live in light of that reconciled reality as long as we are hiding ourselves from pockets of evil that just fester in our lives. And so we see these brothers show up and seemingly in unison agree that they need to re-engage Joseph. And they said, please forgive this evil. And then do you notice what Joseph says to, to them backwards? What would you and I do? What would I do? Oh, gosh, you're being hard on yourself. Listen, God had a purpose. So I've got great news. We're going to get to that. But do you hear what Joseph says in response? He says, he, after he weeps, he says, do not fe- he says, do not fear, for as you meant, what you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good. And so he's affirming their assessment. So what is it they did? Do you know what they did? What is it that was so bad? Right? Well, you say, well, Ryan, they did really bad things. They enslaved Joseph. They, they, they took him and they hurt him and they threw him in this thing, this cistern, and then they sell him to passing by group of, of um, tradesmen taking him to Egypt into slavery. That was bad. Can we all agree? You should not do that. Secondly, they took his coat and they like tear it and cut it up and dip it in a blood of an animal and they present it to, to Jacob. And they say, look, we don't know. What do you think maybe happened? They don't even tell him. They don't, they don't even help him out. He's got to figure it out. Like, I think an animal, yes, that does sound correct to me too. And so now he falls on the ground in fetal position and they're going, like, should we, like, I guess we're going to continue this. So even though he's in this position, we're just going to, like, keep the ruse. For how long? Think about how many years he grieved his son, that they could have, someone could have eventually said, Dad, I've got to tell you something, right? You would think, because they could kind of go down and buy him back. They had money. But no, they just let it fester. They let it go. But what was it that caused that response? I mean, when Joseph walks up, for example, you don't get the picture that the ten sons, because Benjamin's still back home if, as a little baby, you don't get the picture that the ten brothers are sort of like, maybe we'll sell Reuben. Maybe we'll sell Simeon. Or how about the ones that are the concubine boys? Like, they're not having that conversation. There's this unified hatred of one person. And it's Joseph. And it's based on envy, the scripture tells us. And so when envy for him takes shape, their only recourse is to get rid of him. Which we see in Matthew 5, don't we? Where Matthew or Jesus tells us, do not, you've heard it say, do not murder. But I tell you, do not even hate your brother. And most of us think, well, I would never murder somebody. I do hate a lot of people. Wow. Maybe Jesus is also saying, please hear me, when you do hate someone, you're on the trail of murder. Because I don't think this envy and hatred of Joseph, I don't think it just went one by one to the, what they did. I think it just 
it, it sort of festered under the surface. They didn't acknowledge it. And so Jesus is inviting us to acknowledge our hatred before it bursts forth. In James 4, um, you find James taking reconciliation so seriously. In chapter 1, he's like, when you face trials, consider it joy. And basically, do the word and lo- you know, love the widow, love the orphan, love the hard people to love. And then chapter 2, and show no partiality. In chapter 3, don't sin with your tongue. And by chapter 4, he says this, what makes you hate and fight and quarrel? Is it not this? You don't have something, and so you murder. It goes to the heart. So the process of reconciliation is not just going backwards, but it's going deeper. Have we looked deeply into our hearts at what creates the triggers of hatred and frustration, both with other people and with God? So now, before we get to the good news, we need to look at the purpose of this reconciliation. Why did these brothers feel the need to be reconciled with Joseph? What was the purpose? And why would we want to do that today with both our Father in heaven and our fellow brothers and sisters? And it tells us at the end, I've read the story already, but it says, do not fear as you, as, well, I'm going to start at verse 20. As you, as you know, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. There's your purpose. God meant it for good. What does that mean? If God meant for the kidnapping of Joseph for good and he has this purpose, it means that this entire event led to something later. And I think you know what that is. We've talked about it throughout the series. Over like somewhere around 400 years, this people, these offspring will grow into a huge community. And then through Moses' ministry, will be exi- they'll be through the exodus will go into the promised land, right up to the edge, right? And then Joshua takes them into the promised land. And basically, the church is born. So that's the purpose, leading to Christ. That's the big purpose. And we need to recognize that, that God knew that was the purpose. And so he wants them to, be re- to, to have this ministry of reconciliation with each other, right? Is that true? Well, no, you don't need to reconcile for that. They could have never said another word because it already happened. Why would they want to have this kind of closeness and this kind of assurance from Joseph? Now, this is a little bit of conjecture, but let me just say it this way. Do you think that had they stayed at enmity with Joseph in any way, questioning whether they were close, always wondering what he thought of them, that they would have, la- they were, here they are at 17 years. Would they have lasted the next 383 years? Or might they have been sort of sowing the seeds of discord that would have actually not allowed that community to be as strong as it was? But as it is, God wanted flourishing. The purpose of God, yes, in the long term was to make the people of God and to have the exodus. But in the short term, he says he wants them to flourish And that's in our passage. So do not fear, I will provide for you and for your little ones, right? What is it exactly? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Listen to the next sentence. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. There's an immediate purpose, life for these people. And so for the brothers to come to Joseph and understand that means they were becoming reconciled to Joseph and him to them, but them to God's purpose, and that brings flourishing. 
And we see that same exact concept in Romans 8 when Paul uses very famous words when he says this. For those, oh no, excuse me, back up. And he searches the hearts, knows what is in the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But listen to the next few sentences. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's a purpose. Right? What does life look like for Paul and for the New Testament believer? It means to be conformed to the image of his son in order that Jesus, he, might be the firstborn among many brothers. That God has sent Jesus to reconcile not a bunch of individuals. Heaven's not going to just have a bunch of individuals. We're not going to go to heaven and do Facebook where we sort of go, who are my, me and my social media friends get to come with me to heaven. We're going to be around a lot of people we would unfriend on earth. And there's going to be a lot of people that we think are our friends on earth that may not be in heaven. And that sounds really harsh, but the point is, if we're waiting around for a community to be easy, I don't think it's going to happen. But in, our, but in Romans, it says, no, he wants Jesus to be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so the picture of reconciliation, the ministry that Paul has engaged in, the ministry Jesus came to inaugurate at the cross, is a ministry where we are reconciled to both God and man in Christ. That is what the church is about. And let me just tell you, I don't like it. It's hard. It's the hardest thing I can think of. Like, how many of you, I mean, think about Christmas time. How many of you have said, well, I've got to be around family? Anyone said that? No one has said that? And this is an honest moment where you get to raise your hand unless your family's in the room. Like, the understanding, sort of the kind of thing is like, I have my com community, I have my tribe I made up, and then I've got these people I don't like that I came out of. And I've got to go back into that realm and be looked at like I'm still 12, you know, all this stuff. Well, in a way, I think the church has that feel. Like, we have our real friends and our real community, but we come in here and it's just like, let's just kind of get through this together. But I think there's something about the New Testament that gives us much more hope for like a beautiful community that represents the community of heaven in the present. But where does the power come from for that kind of reconciliation? Is this just me like, it may be, just reading this passage and shoving it through. Where is the power for this kind of like Joseph brother reconciliation that we would love? And listen to what he says. I've kind of over, I've not been repeating it every time on purpose. It would be powerful when you hear it now. Just to remind you of what's going on. Joseph's brothers are essentially like, we know what we've done. We see our sin. Will you forgive us? And rather than saying, I have the power to confer forgiveness, what does he say? Do not fear. For am I the place of God? And then he goes on to explain, as for you, 
you meant evil against me, but God meant good. But what does that mean? In the, am I in the place of God? Only God can confer forgiveness. Isn't that what David shows us in Psalm 51? You think he would write, Lord, against Uriah have I sinned, and Bathsheba, and really the people of Israel, which is all true. But he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Why? Because we are all equal. There is, Joseph is no better than his brothers. When you really get down, I love the theology that he's a type of Christ, which is true. But he needs the cross. He needs the blood of Christ. He needs to understand why God did all this so that one day, someday, one of those offspring that Jacob blessed, Judah, would lead to a lion of Judah who will go to the cross and give him a power and a forgiveness that he can't get on his own. He is no different from the other ones. So when he says, who am I in the place of God, he's saying we need the cross. In the Bible, you come to these places that are almost maddening where Jesus talks about forgiveness and then regularly says, if you don't forgive, I don't forgive you. And every time I read that, my orphan heart goes, oh, my gosh. Do you ever feel that way, anyone? Do you ever get nervous? Well, let me try to unpack what I think Jesus is simply saying there. When I'm mad at somebody, I have a fresh opportunity to readdress my conversion story and ask this question. Jesus, how did it look like for you to forgive me? Because right now, I feel like what, what Brian Lair sent to me yesterday is so much worse than what I did to you, Jesus. Can you imagine saying that? I mean, it was pretty bad, but we worked through it. I mean, I think we would, we would laugh, wouldn't we? But yet we actually are essentially saying that when we don't forgive. We're really embodying the idea that we say we love Jesus and, and Christmas and the gospel. But right now, as much as I don't like that brother or sister, that tells you my view of God is centered on how I view my, my neighbor right there. I wrote it down just to say it clearly. When you are at odds with a brother or sister, you are at odds with God. I cannot be perfectly reconciled to God in Christ and feeling that and then mad at somebody else. It's impossible. We will never go to the cross and worship and look next to us and go, what are you doing here? There's a problem. And it's, James would say, consider this joyful. Like this is what we're signed up for. This isn't occasional. This is like, this is it. Do you think I'm at odds with anybody? Yes. So my challenge from this sermon, the application is simply this. As we move into the Christmas season, it would be helpful for Ryan Baker to go, Jesus, who am I frustrated with? Who am I at odds with? And ask that I would find forgiveness for them. Not so I earn my forgiveness, but flip it. Ask that my understanding of my own need for Jesus would be so profound, my log would become so clear to me that my heart would melt and long to run to my brother or sister for reconciliation right now. No matter what the problem, no matter what the sin. 
And if I'm not doing that, and to the degree I'm not doing that, I'm not believing the reconciliation I have with God. Right? I'm not saying a person's not a Christian, but they're not living in light of their faith. So that's the question before all of us. Is, are we willing, like these brothers, to come forward and say to the Lord and to one another, I see the depths of evil that you forgave me for, Jesus. Will you restore unto me the joy of my salvation in such a way that I would offer mercy and grace and love to those to whom I'm angry and in discord with? Now, it won't be received at all times, especially when you get around family, uh, especially when you get around non-Christians. But we love our enemies. We don't call them that. We don't say that at a family gathering. But we know there are people who don't have the same faith we do, but we love them. We show them kindness. We care for them. And we also have those that are Christians who maybe aren't ready to forgive. We love them and care for them and show them kindness. But the question that I'm throwing out for all of us is this. Do we long to be reconciled to God and to one another? That this community may be a community of love and beauty so that as people do come in the door, they smell the aroma of mercy. Let's pray. Jesus... You came to earth to reconcile to yourself sinners, of which I can honestly say I am of the worst. I see my heart. I feel my sin. I know my flesh. Lord, I also know that I often ignore that and build up calluses and use methods and mechanisms to ignore my own achingness for you. But Lord Jesus, I also believe your spirit dwells in your people and in my heart. And that spirit says that we are to bring our sins before you, to freshly understand the beauty of your cross, to stop trying to perfect ourselves by law-keeping or doing better, but to come boldly to your throne of grace. Lord, we sing these songs, we preach these sermons, we look at these Bible verses. Now I ask spirit that this very day you would repair brokenness in our midst for your glory. Amen.